Hi, welcome to InSync, the podcast that explores the history and impact of some of your favorite music moments in TV and film. I'm your host, Rachel Brodsky. And I'm Aviv Rubenstein. Between its record-shattering soundtrack, a classic Romeo and Juliet meets coming-of-age plot, and groundbreaking dance routines, the 1987 romantic drama Dirty Dancing is by far one of the most beloved movie franchises in history. Though Dirty Dancing's soundtrack is a behemoth unto itself, packed with both early 60s pop songs and original music, no track is more inexorably linked to the film than its theme song, I've Had the Time of My Life, composed by Frankie Previtt, John DiNicola, and Donald Markowitz. Recorded by Bill Medley and Jennifer Warnes. Quick fun fact, Previtt and Denicola also wrote another Dirty Dancing original song, Hungry Eyes, which was recorded by Eric Carmen. On this episode of InSync, we're talking about the history and impact that I've had the time of my life. One of Aviv's favorite songs, just kidding, he really hates it, uh, how it was released a few weeks before the film and almost did a total chart belly flop and what its legacy is today. And we've also got a super special guest on the pod, culture journalist Jake Craig Trifles, who in 2020 wrote an essay for The Ringer called How I've Had the Time of My Life Saved Dirty Dancing. All that and more on this episode of InSync. You just put your pickle on everybody's plate, college boy, and leave the hard stuff to me. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $129 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Jake, it's so good to have you with us. Thank you for taking time out of your day to help us break down this all-time music moment. Will you please tell us about yourself and how you came to write an essay about Dirty Dancing and I've had the time of my life? Well, I'm going to be honest. Thank you for having me. This is a pleasure. I did not really have a great connection with this movie. I've honestly listened to this song ad nauseum at weddings, bar mitzvahs, bat mitzvahs, the like, and never really watched the movie. I just felt like, okay, this is part of the movie, but I never felt like I needed to watch it. It wasn't as big in my cultural sphere, (laughs) but at a certain point uh, when the pandemic hit and I was trying to figure out story ideas, the ringer had kind of come up with this fun summer blockbuster series to kind of fill the void for all the missing movies we were getting that summer and they were doing anniversaries. So, okay, August is coming up. What would be a fun anniversary blockbuster to go through? And this is funny because it's not even really a blockbuster in the regular sense. I mean, this was made on like a 6 million budget. So I was thinking about, okay, well maybe if I pitched an idea about the song, cause that's the thing that I 
think most people associate with this movie. And I just thought, well, everyone's done this story in a certain way. They've talked to Frankie Previtt, or maybe they just did a one-off with Bill Medley. But do we actually know like the full arc and evolution of how this story was made, how this song got into this movie in the first place? So that was my real introduction was I just like finding ways to make a comprehensive story and figure out how cultural phenomenon becomes a thing. So that was my into it. I just wanted to figure out a way that I could I could write a story <laughs> for the a month where it was pretty much dead in August in 2020. Needed something to, to kind of fill my plate, and I figured this would be a great song because I like the song and I want to figure out how this was in the movie. Honestly, that's why you're here today on the show. That's funny because it's like a little bit more clinical than I was expecting, but I give you props. You're just a smart journalist in yeah. that in that way. You create some. Work. Yeah, I don't have I don't have the origin story of like, well, when I was three years old, I heard this song. But I my- think that's like everybody's origin story. I mean, that's probably my origin story. I, I'm I just being the age I am and growing up watching the movie and and seeing the you know like I never heard the song before the movie, but. I was going to bug Aviv about, like, I know I'm getting super ahead of myself and trying to, like, twist Aviv's arm into not necessarily liking the song, but to I, respect I, it. Respect I don't it because, dislike the song. Okay, and I think that Jake's essay really proved this, that the movie and the song could not exist without each other. They they lift each other up. They are the baby and the... And the Patrick and the Johnny. No, and pun the in, Johnny. no pun intended there. No pun lift each other. That, that's up. exactly what I mean. That's exactly pun what intended. I mean. Pun very much intended. So we love a good forensic analysis on this show, and we're going to give Jake and Rachel the chance to uh, explain to me why I'm so incredibly wrong about not liking this cue in this in this movie. But first, a little bit of background on the movie itself. Dirty Dancing is a film that, having never seen it until a few years ago lived in my head as one thing for decades. So similar to Jake's story, I didn't grow up with the film. I knew it as a thing, quote unquote, for girls, right? And not that it was bad. That was just like a thing that didn't super appeal to me. I'm not like big into dancing. And through pop culture osmosis, I had built a plot and even provided context to one of the movie's most iconic lines, which is nobody puts baby in a corner. But when I finally caught up with the movie in my 30s, I was shocked to discover an entirely different movie than the one I had built. <laughs> so Dirty Dancing is set in 1963, and it takes place at like a family getaway resort camp thing in the Catskills. Really like summer Jewish. camp for adults. Yeah. yeah. There's like there's canoeing. And charades. Charades. Francis Baby Hausman, read Jewish, played by Jennifer Grey who is the real-life daughter of legendary cabaret song and dance phenomenon, Joel Gray. She's vacationing with her family, cardiologist Reed Jewish. Her cardiologist Reed Jewish father, Jake, played by Law & Order's Jerry Orbach, and her mother, Marge, played by Kelly Bishop, who I'm told is a Gilmore girl. She is the grandmother. The eldest she is Gilmore. The eldest Gilmore. Actually, yes. that's not true. There's... um. Well, she she married into the Gilmore family. Oh, okay. And uh, her husband, Richard Gilmore, his mother, I guess, would technically be the eldest Gilmore. <laughs> they're, they're also with the older sister, Lisa, who has no connection to the Gilmore girls. 
So Baby secretly observes the owner of the resort, Max Kellerman, instructing the waiters, uh, who are all Ivy League students, to romance the guests' daughters, no matter how unattractive. Even Ma- the dogs. Even the dogs. I didn't want to say that until Rachel said it. I think I'm the only one here <laughs> who can say it. <laughs> Max also demeans the working class <laughs> entertainment staff. These are the people that teach aerobics and canoeing and most importantly dance. They are not they're not college educated. Yeah, the wrong yeah. side of the tracks. Yeah. Including Johnny Castle, one of the dance instructors played by Patrick Swayze, who of any of those 80s actors has the greatest character names. Yes. I was going to say Johnny Castle is unbelievable. Bodie from Point Break. John Roadhouse from Roadhouse. What's his name in Ghost? I don't know. Um, <laughs> I'm like, I like all the girly Patrick Swayze movies. So Baby meets Johnny at a secret after hours dirty dancing club and thus begins a love triangle between Baby, her would-be suitor Neil, who is the owner's son, and Johnny. But no one is a match for Swayze. Meanwhile, Johnny's dance partner, Penny, is pregnant via a dalliance with Robbie, who is one of those Ivy League prick waiters. Robbie fucks off to ruin another girl's life, and Penny gets a back alley abortion, which leaves her in horrible shape, so much so that Baby has to risk her reputation and ask her cardiologist father to treat Penny. There is a ton of intrigue involving Johnny getting propositioned by one of the guests, Lisa, baby's sister, trying to throw herself at Robbie the fuckwit, and some real upstairs downstairs shit where like Johnny is accused of stealing and is fired, and it turns out one of the guests is stealing, and that guest was originally supposed to be played by Dr. Ruth Westheimer. It's a it's a whole it's a whole thing. So he can't perform in the big talent show at the end of the season. So at this talent show, baby is seated kind of in the corner of the room. Johnny bursts in, finds Baby, tells her that she's not allowed to sit in a corner. And then they do their final big talent show performance to the song of the week. So before we talk about the song, I'd like to briefly discuss the meaning of this famous line, nobody puts Baby in a corner. I, having not seen the movie for for my entire life, did not know that this was not a metaphor. I thought that this was like, you're in, you're backed into the corner and then no one's going to put you in the corner and you're going to overcome, right? <laughs> but it is sort of a metaphor too, isn't it? it yes. Because However, you're not going to, you're not going to put her in a metaphorical or literal corner. However, imagine you're me watching this movie for the first time thinking that it's entirely metaphorical. <laughs> and then it's like, no, no, there's a, or I also didn't know that someone in the movie was named Baby. So I thought that he was like talking to himself where he's like <laughs> like boxing and he's like, oh, you're in the corner and no one's going to put you in the corner. So I always thought Johnny was talking to himself saying like, you've backed me into the corner. Now I'm going to overcome. So imagine my surprise when that's not what happened at all. Well, the other thing about this is I heard allegedly that Patrick Swayze hated, hated this line so he much. Did. We have a clip. <laughs> so there's that element. But also. Does he even know that baby was put in the corner? She's just sitting. She could have just sat there out of her own volition. Correct. Well, if she sat there of her own volition, it's probably because she already feels because she begins the family vacation feeling totally unnoticed, mm-hmm. more or less, except for by like Neil, the the, wan- the, the wanker, yeah. the Cornell dickhead business guy. And She's, it's like the coming of age thing of the film where she, she has not tra- yet transcended. I mean, she's almost there because they haven't, they haven't done the final dance yet, 
but probably for the moment, she's feeling very down and and not great about herself. She's probably just like retreating back mm. into uh, where she's got to like just be in her family structure because yeah. she because her her sister Lisa is the more outgoing and she's the one in like the end of the summer talent show and she's she, the one she, that's trying to fuck Robbie. She's the joiner <laughs> and <laughs> a baby is kind of the wallflower. But nobody includes yourself. So nobody puts baby in the corner, including baby, baby. Right. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. She, he's not only admonishing her father, he's admonishing baby for putting herself in that position. So <laughs> famously, Patrick Swayze hated saying this line, did not fucking get it. Same as me. And so he talked to AFI uh, shortly before his death about coming to terms with having to say this line. I hated that line. Nobody puts baby in a corner. And uh, it was only because I didn't understand what was behind it. I was thinking it's time for Patrick Swayze as Johnny Castle to come back into this room and do his big dance number. And it was only when, when, um, when I found what was behind that line that it wasn't about getting ready to do the big dance number of the movie um, um, with the girl that you were never going to be able to have because she was always going to be out of your league. It was about coming back to serve. You know, there's, there's an Eastern, Eastern adage that says only when one learns to serve can one truly be master. And uh, it was when I started this kind of thought and, and looking beneath the surface uh, was when that line worked for me to where when I went up and, and said that to her, I truly believed it. But up until that point and up until I found that that background and that and that passion as an actor, I hated that line. I was going to do anything in my power to get it cut. So never did I expect there to be like an Eastern philosophy angle for <laughs> nobody puts baby in a corner. But I suppose I didn't know what to expect. The film was directed by Emil Ardolino, who, after this, went on to direct the truly bizarre rom-com, Chances Are, with a young Robert Downey Jr. and Sybil Shepard. Have either of you heard of this movie? I, I have not. not. <laughs> this movie is wild. So Sybil <laughs> Shepard's husband, Ryan O'Neill, dies. I think, no, Sybil Shepard, I can't remember who it is. Sybil, she Sybil Shepard's husband dies and is reincarnated as Robert Downey Jr., who is in love with Sybil Shepard because he still retains some of his memories from his past life. Then an angel realizes the mistake that was made in the reincarnation, allowing Robert Downey Jr. to keep his memories and is chasing Robert Downey Jr. as he's trying to fuck Sybil Shepard to like <laughs> erase his memory. In the end, it works. And Robert Downey Jr., the reincarnation of Sybil Shepard's husband, falls in love with Sybil Shepard's daughter, his own daughter. <laughs> It is so fucking weird. I don't know why, but that reminds me of like a more convoluted prelude to a kiss. Okay. I buy that for a dollar. Um, <laughs> Artelino also directed Three Men and a Little Lady in Sister Act. So I would say that Dirty Dancing is his strongest film. Followed by Sister Act. It's a very close second. Close second, Sister yeah. I love. I actually really love Sister Act. Love Sister Act. I'm trying to trace the connection there. Patrick Swayze to Whoopi and Ghost and then Whoopi into Sister Act. Well, Whoopi famously replaced Bette Midler last minute for Sister Act. Oh, I could see so that. So it's also possible that Artelino had like some hand in that because Whoopi had done Ghost in between Dirty Dancing and, and Sister Act. But the real auteur of the film is Eleanor Bergstein, who wrote a semi-autobiographical screenplay retelling events from her own teenage years. 
like Baby Hausman, Bergstein came from a liberal Jewish family who visited Catskill Resorts during the 60s. Her father was a doctor. She was nicknamed Baby until she was 22 years old. She even had a relationship with a much older dance instructor. So the character of Johnny Castle is based on a dance instructor named Michael Terrence. But Eleanor's life also influenced Swayze's character because like Johnny Castle, Bergstein was a skilled dirty dancer who learned at house parties and later became a dance instructor herself. So Jennifer Grey stars as Baby, and she was 26 playing 17, which isn't all that crazy, but every article about the movie is like, and did you know she was 26? Which, like, watch any show or movie about. I mean, look at half of the 25-year-olds playing 17-year-olds on Beverly Hills 90210. I mean, I feel like they or were... Or like Euphoria now, right? Yeah, well, I mean, they will be 25 or 26 by the time the next season right. rolls around. And Swayze was 34 playing 24, which is like a little tougher pill to swallow visually, but like... Yeah, he, he does look he does look older. Kelly Bishop wasn't much older than Patrick Swayze at the time. Right. <laughs> Kelly yeah. Bishop playing Baby's mom was like in her early 50s, right? I think so, but she's only maybe 13 years older than him. Yeah. <laughs> I think that like being even as actors in the pre this decade, last decade, looking in your 30s is just very different. True. Yeah. Um, and Kelly Bishop playing Baby's mom was kind of a last minute addition because the original actor that was cast to play Mrs. Hausman had to leave after a week of shooting. And so they they called up Kelly Bishop, who was originally the uh the woman who propositions Robbie or accuses Johnny of stealing or whatever. Mm. In alternate reality casting news, along with Jennifer Gray, Sarah Jessica Parker and Winona Ryder, Jewish, were considered for baby. And Benicio Del Toro, Billy Zane, and noted on-set terror Val Kilmer were all considered for Johnny. And according to the movies that made us on Netflix, Eleanor Bergstein cast Swayze because of his eyes. Quote, I wanted hooded eyes, Bergstein said. So we went through picture after picture and I said, ah, those are the eyes that I want. Can I just tell you real quick? And I'm sure there's a moment for it, but like, this doesn't even really have to do with anyone's age, but given the intense 80s-ness of everybody's hair, in this oh, movie, yeah. when I grew up watching Dirty Dancing, I just did not know. I did not realize it was meant to take place in the early 60s for decades. And I think that that might be why the song works better for you than it does for me. Because <laughs> in my 30s, watching this movie that was made in the 80s take place in the 60s, it did show a very specific time and place for most of it. And then it kind of like changed. But. We'll talk about that yeah, a little bit. Yeah, we'll get into it. Yeah. Jennifer Grey was not a big fan of Swayze's. They worked together on the original Red Dawn in 84 and apparently clashed. This is from People. She begged us to have anyone but Patrick, Eleanor Bergstein said. The pair had worked together in the 1984 film Red Dawn and had not gotten along. But when Bergstein explained that Grey did not want to do the film with him, Swayze offered to talk with Jennifer. He went in alone and sat with Jennifer for about a half an hour. And they came out with their eyes red. And the pair was solidified as Johnny and Baby. I'd like to offer some context there. Yes. Have either of you read Jennifer Grey's autobiography that came out in the last year? It's very good. I recommend it. She is a very good writer. 
she talks about her nose. She kind of opens with all that. And that's, it's, that's real rough, man. Offers some great context for why she even got a nose job in the first place. It's so sad that that her entire career was based on people making fun of her nose. And then as soon as she took that away, people are like, well, we don't care about you anymore. Yes. She writes about having trouble, regardless of what a successful movie this was, she writes about having trouble even getting roles that she would want after Dirty Dancing. And she writes about how her mother got a nose job and her father got a nose job and she has this whole history in her family of everybody getting nose jobs because there's this cultural pressure for jewish actors to look less jewish and it's just kind of baked into the well if you want a career in show business it's like why they never come out like and mention and say straight up this is a jewish resort or Mm -hmm. for a lot of jewish families it's like you had to really tone down the jewishness for for decades so this role just happened to be perfect for her at the time but she did have kind of a squabble with uh i think i think her thing with like patrick swayze got a bit blown out of proportion really because she when she writes about it she mentions that like she's really she's much younger than he is when they're making red dawn and she takes this very seriously and she just and she wants to do her job and do it well and i guess patrick was kind of like joking around and like holding things up and like flubbing his lines. And I think one scene in particular got messed up for her. And um, I would need the book in front of me to like really get it absolutely right. But it was like one interaction just made her, her decide, okay, I don't like you. Like this is, this isn't going to work. And yeah. partially it's Patrick kind of stealing her thunder, which I think she sees this as a big opportunity for her. And as Jake mentioned, this is kind of a low budget film. They only had three months to do this soup to nuts. So like if he's flubbing his lines and holding up production, like that's going to fuck things up for them. I think a lot goes into it other than just like, I don't like you. I don't think it's completely uh, out yeah. of nowhere that they that they clashed a little bit. She does write about how in the moment he's such a charming person and how everybody loved him so much. And she does write like in this time and place, I loved him too. What's weird is it's almost the reverse, I think, in Dirty Dancing. It mm-hmm. seemed like she couldn't take herself seriously in this movie. And Patrick Swayze was so dead set on getting this right. Because he's like a right. trained He's like a trained ballet. full dancer. Yeah. You read my mind, yeah. That whole scene where, you know, she's putting the uh, arm down his, or he's putting her his arm down her armpit. And, you know, she keeps flubbing and, and joking and laughing because it tickles. And he's actually very angry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they keep those scenes in. Yeah, and yeah. I think I think that that is I don't know if it was her revenge, but I think it's like a little bit of uh turnabout is is fair play. Speaking of those dance scenes, the dance scenes in the film, a lot of them were improvised. The tickling one was improvised, but most of them were choreographed by Kenny Ortega, and he used their real life kind of tension to fuel baby and Johnny's chemistry on screen. He told people in 2017, both of them brought so much every day. Sometimes it was conflict. Sometimes it was love. There was something there between the two of them that was unexplainable. They were human fireworks. It's worth noting that Gray was dating her Ferris Bueller co-star at the time, Matthew Broderick, who makes like an uncredited cameo at the end of the movie. But like, if you're Matthew Broderick, you're you're scared that Mr. Steal Your Girl is going to steal your girl. (laughs) He apparently was kind of threatened by kind of yeah 
yeah, kind of a dick. He was kind of a dick. And yeah. probably things have changed. Who knows? But at the time, she, again, really recommend her autobiography because she writes about know. how he, well, he, he's like Mr. Hot Thing in Hollywood at the time, right? Especially following Ferris Bueller. And he can't really deal with Jennifer Grey's, like, just ex- explosion success or it's just like a attention in their relationship attention and like love matched in the movie with the literally the hottest person that's yeah. ever lived right like yeah he's an adonis yeah kenny ortega the choreographer went on to direct newsies hocus pocus and the high school musical movies which themselves started out as grease sequels not bad yeah right good jo- good job kenny ortega <laughs> And he's choreographed like a million gajillion things. He's like the Hollywood choreographer to get. Originally, the project was called I Was a Teenage Mambo Queen. This is from Collider. And producer Linda Gottlieb convinced Bergstein to go to lunch. And the two of them came up with a better title. They were worried. There's some like conflicting reports on like when this changed. But they were worried that when they were telling people what the name of the movie was, I Was a Teenage Mambo Queen would like imply like they were doing a porno which is funny because i think everyone thought when they were asked to work on the movie from the music end at least that it was a porno right given the name they ended up with and right and eleanor bergstein told this story about how she like used to sneak out on the wrong side of the tracks and go to dirty dancing clubs and it was like according to collider like this walk the line moment where linda gottlieb is like Dirty Dancing Clubs, you say? And that's how they came up with the title, Dirty Dancing. The abortion subplot did not just come as a surprise to me when I was watching it in my 30s, but also to some corporate sponsors. This is from E. In order to secure corporate sponsorship, producers asked Eleanor to take Penny's abortion out of the script. And uh, Eleanor said, I always had known this would happen one day, which is like, A real, like, they'd come for me. Um, I said, hey, I would love to, but I can't because if I take it out, everything will fall apart. There's no story without that. Everything just crumbles. Nothing will make sense. Yeah, like, why would Baby take her place in the Sheldrake performance? Right. Why would they even need to dance together in the first place? And so the producers go to the corporate sponsors and say, oh, too bad. We should have thought of that sooner. And then, like, we can't do it, which is something that I, too, have experienced in in movies. As a writer of screenplays, I firmly believe that every scene should be important because if, if a scene isn't important, why is it in the movie? And then I have been approached by producers while we're either in pre-production or production or post being like let's cut some scenes out because it's too long or this is not you know whatever and they ask me what scenes are unimportant and the answer should always be like none of them are unimportant so i'm i'm glad that bergstein kept her i keep going back with back and forth with steenstein so i'm I'm right half the time bergstein uh held her ground and kept the subplot by the way, I don't know if you have this later in the notes, but there were a lot of like issues that plagued this shoot. So many. I don't yeah. I, I didn't get into that, but I would love for you to. OK, well, one of the things Eleanor told me was this was being shot in late August, September in Virginia, in North Carolina. The, the leaves were starting to change. And this obviously takes place in the summer. They had people paint the leaves green <laughs> on the trees. Jennifer Gray got stung by a wasp, I believe. 
and Patrick Swayze injured his knee. Yeah, and this is all this is all within like, you know, six weeks of trying to get this down. Plus so. it was like incredibly cold. All the all of the water stuff that they were doing mm. like is cold in the summer because it's like glacial runoff or whatever, but like it's like extra cold when it's September. Yeah. I, I uh read in Raya's book that she also provided a lot of her own clothes that she brought with her. Like because they were so secluded. That in order to get what they needed could be anything, and in this case, wardrobe, that they actually like, they, they couldn't just go out to a mall and source wardrobe. And, and that's not super rare for actors to bring their own wardrobe to pick from. It mm-hmm. is rare, however, for the lead actor to bring their own wardrobe and for a movie that made $214 million at the box office in 1987 to be like, Jennifer's got to wear her own shit. <laughs> it, it turned out, I think it was just like what what had to happen. I mean, I think they, yeah. they had brought wardrobe for her, but I do not recall why they ran out. Sometimes but, it just but, doesn't work. Yeah. yeah. The, the other thing that Eleanor told me, which is really funny because this movie was so low budget, they ran out of food by the time they were doing this finale scene. And so they had all these extras that like had really no food. And so she would like steal peanut butter crackers and give them out to the extra dancers Hell just yeah. to keep them <laughs> satisfied. Oh my God. And like you really need to keep, especially people who find are bef- from SAG on that one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> These people said, are spending. It was funny too. She's like, oh yeah, I, I mean, I cried every morning, but I, so I would, I would just take cucumber slices and put them on my eyes just so that people didn't see I was crying. <laughs> Oh my god. I mean, low budget filmmaking is really rough and and we look at it now as this was like a box office juggernaut eventually. But yeah, this this was supposed to be a very modest movie that somehow caught fire. The somehow spoilers has to do with this our song of the week. But mm-hmm. after watching the initial cut of the movie, the producers had very little faith in it. According to Eleanor, producer Aaron Ross told us to burn the negative and take the insurance. Everyone told us constantly what a negligible piece of shit it was. Yeah, this was like the little movie that could, because nobody believed in it. They were considering doing a direct-to-video release, which was, at this point, a complete kiss of death for a movie. She had said that she was going to even go... She had gone to the movie theaters where it was being played initially and was ready to like pay people money for having wasted their money on the movie. And so the box office. Guy, yeah, she was like, I was going to just pay them for going because I felt bad they had to watch what they were watching. But <laughs> the film was a hit, bolstered by the soundtrack. The soundtrack held number one spot on Billboard album charts for over four months. It sold 14 million copies. I've had the time of my life went on to win the Oscar for best original song. And ultimately, Dirty Dancing made $214 million just in theaters. And that is. 571 million in 2023 dollars so she's doing like marvel movie numbers (laughs) and that's just in theaters dirty dancing became the first film to sell more than a million copies for home video back when home videos cost like 50 bucks do you want to hear something funny regarding the way that i got into this movie I'm sure it was on like a VH, like a, a grainy VHS. It was kind of, except that my parents taped it off of TV and oh, yeah. it came with all. And so it was like the edited for TV version. So when Penny says, well, you know what, baby, you don't know shit about my problems. It was like the shit was cut out. So it was like, well, you know what, baby, you don't know about my problems. Yeah. And so there's that. like some stuff that like I did not hear until I got older and like 
got to just watch it all the way through on streaming. But my version of Dirty Dancing had all the 80s commercials that's amazing um, in there so that those commercials for me for years were just like part of the whole dirty dancing experience i i have a similar th- well so i still don't think i've ever seen ferris bueller's day off without commercials wow because like i've only ever watched it on like comedy central yeah on a saturday afternoon but when i was a kid this was like around the same era my babysitter had taped the 1989 batman movie off of tv for me and the tape ran out in the last, I want to say, like, three minutes of the movie. And so, you know, for first 25 years of my life, I did not know what the last <laughs> three minutes of the movie were. Which is like, you know, the, the, he drops the Joker off the building. Like, everything's, like, basically done. Except for, like, there's, like, one scene that I was missing. And, uh, yeah, that was a big surprise when I watched it on streaming for the first time in, like, 2015. <laughs> That's great. Of course, a sleeper hit like this requires more than one bite at the apple. So along with the prequel movie, which people are relatively familiar with, Dirty Dancing Havana Nights, CBS created a Dirty Dancing television series. It only lasted 11 episodes in 1988. Patrick Cassidy and Melora Harding, Jan Levinson from The Office, co-starred as Johnny and Baby, and it's interesting that jake mentions how short baby was how short jennifer gray is because melora harding is like very tall <laughs> yeah. and famously was fired from back to the future because she was taller than michael j fox um or too tall for michael mm-hmm. j fox let's say yeah um and so yeah poor melora had like so many near misses before she she had a hit with the office so the show is basically a retelling of the film with a couple of notable exceptions the abortion subplot is gone because it's cbs in 19 oh yeah and yeah. now baby is the daughter of max kellerman the owner of the resort and she's like in charge of the entertainment troupe and she's like Johnny's boss and meets him that way. Um, you know, I, I don't know if you can watch the episodes on YouTube. I don't know if you need I to. Pro- I won't. Um, but I'll give you three guesses to the show's theme song. You'll only need one. Is it the it's, song we're here to talk about? It's the song we're here to talk about today. <laughs> so let's jump into the, our music section and talk a little bit about the history of I've Had the Time of My Life. So we've talked about how Frankie Private is kind of like the force behind writing I've Had the Time of My Life. So this the whole movie has such an interesting crossover between 80s artists and then 60s artists writing and singing 80s songs. And one example is uh, Mary Clayton. Oh, yeah. Uh. Mary Clayton is the voice behind Yes, which was written for this movie as well. And it's it's the song that closes out. Well, at first you you hear it when Lisa is walking up to Robbie's bunk to proposition him and oh uh finds him in bed with with uh, another woman, the woman that Johnny was previously sleeping with, and then you hear Yes at the on the closing credits. I love this song and if we could talk about more than one song, I want to talk about that. But Mary Clayton was also on Gimme Shelter by the Rolling Stones. Uh, she is the voice you hear in that song. And she's and also, I think, in like in that documentary about background singers. Yes, mm-hmm. 20 Feet from Stardom. Yeah, yeah. 20 Feet the, from Stardom. She's the one that deserves 50 years worth of royalties for singing on Gimme Shelter 
Yeah. And hasn't gotten them. And that's when they isolate those vocals too. And yeah. it's incredible to hear. And you hear Jagger like screaming in the background. Yeah. 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 But I'll get back to Frankie real quick. He was the lead singer of the New Jersey pop rock band, Frankie and the Knockouts, who when I first read that band name, I thought, oh, this is a 60s band that they're bringing back. But no, they're they're an early 80s band. And he had some success with the song Sweetheart in 1981. But by 1986, he was without a recording contract. And so by late 86, early 87, the producer of Millennium Records, Jimmy Iyner, or Einer, is it Einer? Einer, yeah. Yeah. So if you notice, when the credits start to roll on Dirty Dancing, the original movie, they give a special thanks to Jimmy Einer. And it's really, I think, thanks to Jimmy Einer that the whole soundtrack got put into place. And he he really had to do a lot of convincing for a lot of singers because they, they went to, convincing. They went to a lot of people for a lot of the original songs, and a lot of people said no because they thought that the title "Dirty Dancing" was a porn. And it also was it was tough because Jennifer Grey and Patrick Swayze they were actors, but they were not like A list names yet. And especially because Ferris Bueller's yeah. Day Off was like still yeah. like starting to hit. So it wasn't exactly like she was a household name yet. Yeah, yeah. The whole movie, like, it's it's just, and you know that, you, you both know this, but, like, it's so hard to get anyone to sign on to anything when there's not, like, a big name attached to it mm-hmm. somewhere. And there's really none of that in this whole movie. So that's why I always want to call it the little movie that could. Jimmy Einer. Ask Previtt about writing some music for, quote, a little movie called Dirty Dancing. Previtt initially turned down the request because he was trying to get a record deal and he thought the film was a porn, as said. And Einer was really, really persistent. He was like, this is going to change your life. And ultimately, Previtt did write a few songs for the movie, including I've Had the Time of My Life and Hungry Eyes, which was recorded. I didn't know until the recording of this episode that Hungry Eyes was written for this movie. It was. Hungry Eyes rules. Yeah. It is a great song. Any of the songs on because this this whole soundtrack is such a mishmash of like 80s songs. This is why, again, I was so like between the hair and the wardrobe and the It's confusing. <laughs> it's it's really confusing because like in some of the dance sequences. Baby and Penny are wearing very 80s looking outfits, like, <laughs> like giant, giant mid torso belts <laughs> that are that scream 80s. And the no one would be blamed for not fully realizing like what decade this is supposed to take place. And but like the 80s really romanticized the 60s in the way that the 90s romanticized the 70s. So it is also kind of makes sense in the end why they're overlapping like that uh, visually and sonically. Hungry Eyes, by the way, I think they were originally planning to put the song... I don't know how they were going to do this because it doesn't really make sense, but when she's carrying the watermelons up to the to the cabin where yeah. everyone's dancing, that they were going to try to put it in there and then they realized, okay, this doesn't work. Let's find another spot. And then they found the better spot. I can kind of see it working there. It's like a little... You got to lean away from like the longing and a little bit more into like the 80s montage of it all. But yeah. Yeah, the 80s montage. A, yeah. It's it's a better place where they have it in the movie. <laughs> Two things. So one, in all of the actual like underground club, dirty dancing with the Kellerman staff, I think you only ever hear late 50s or early 60s songs. Like it's all 
time appropriate. Like you hear a lot of Otis Redding and Solomon Burke with like the montage moments. You hear more like 80 songs, like Aviv was saying. So I, I rewatched Dirty Dancing just the other day to prep for the episode. And I was like, I've never thought about this before. But what were the watermelons for? Were they just for snacks? Strength. Are they going to inject vodka in them and have like a a party favor? I shit you not. I was always because like I watched the Karate Kid a lot. And so I thought that this was like a a montage to make her stronger. That's why she was carrying the watermelon. They're just there. I I guess they're party favors and snacks. It's kind of like the orange slices after a soccer game. Maybe it's like watermelon after dirty dancing. Get your electrolytes back up. (laughs) We should do a we're going to do an Instagram poll as a part of this episode. Listeners. Did you think that baby carrying the watermelon was for snacks or for strength? Or for Vote or now. for vodka injection. Or for getting drunk. Yeah, Vote getting now. Drunk. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so Private wrote the lyrics and the music was written by John DeNicola and Don Markovitz. We're talking about the lyrics to I, I've Had the Time of My Life. Yes, we're right. back on I've Had the Time of My Life. Correct. So this is a really fun New Jersey centric fact and i'm from new jersey and i got (laughs) excited reading this fun fact but private apparently came up with the title i've had the time of my life in a very ironic way because he was apparently driving down the garden state parkway which is the opposite of having time of your life i don't if you've ever (laughs) for anyone who has driven on the parkway if you know you know that is the most stressful highway because it has like 10 lanes all in like the closest, you cannot drive an SUV, not that I would, but you cannot drive a large car in like the middle lane of all of these lanes without like getting your side mirror knocked off. It's it's just a very claustrophobic experience. So I'm amazed that he had a moment. The time of his life. I'm amazed that he thought about anything involving the time of my life, of his life. That's like the song Dancing in the Moonlight was like written about like a malicious, violent attack. And he's like, what if this didn't happen? What if this wasn't (laughs) miserable? I think for being a Jersey born guy, though, it kind of makes sense because you're it's almost like your shower thoughts, like driving on the parkway. Like he's done that so many times in his life. And it's probably where all the inspiration comes from. He's just zoning out. He's just like, I can't believe I'm on here again. Puts in the cassette tape. Here's some of the music. All right. Um, you know, and then he I'm just happy. goes into his thing. Yeah, I, I think the turnpike makes better sense for shower thoughts, but I get it. Because <laughs> Rachel's really draw drawing a line between turnpike and parkway here. The parkway has like there's like no time between exits. Every exit no comes up so quick, and on the turnpike, you can really zone out between like exit eight and exit eight A. I speak from experience. Uh, shout out to my favorite song about the Garden State Parkway, Titus Andronicus's A More Perfect Union. Oh, that's, yes. Love, <laughs> love Titus Andronicus. Hell yeah. Anyhow, Previtt told American songwriter in 2020, Einer had a good feeling about I've Had the Time of My Life. He gave me a short description of the movie and said, the good news is you can write the song. The bad news is it's got to be seven minutes long. <sighs> so I'm thinking MacArthur Park and songs like that. My songwriting partner, John D. Nicola, and I were writing and making demos, trying to get a record deal. I was introduced to John by David Prater, 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 who had a studio in his basement in Montclair. This is so Jersey. I love it. Where I would record demos for $35 an hour. And Private suggested the song should begin with a slow, dramatic opening. I said, let's start the song in halftime with the chorus up front and then double time the verses. 
Uh, the first thing I thought of was Donna Summer's Last Chance. Now I can only picture them dancing to MacArthur Park at the <laughs> end of Dirty Dancing. Someone left a cake out in the rain. <laughs> and he's like lifting her up. Well, the thing that was interesting about this too is like Prevett said to me he had a hundred. I mean, this is like the classic story that everyone goes to. You know, I had a hundred dollars in my bank account before this song came to mm-hmm. me. But I guess if we're, let's just go, well, let's just take his word for it. He was selling used cars in his garage of his parents house he was living with his parents he was like 40 years old and he was like yeah my mom and dad just said you know stick with it keep trying (laughs) so i mean this is like kind of incredible that jimmy einer actually like wanted frankie in the first place to try something do we think that that's real though do we think that he went through a handful he like went to quincy jones and quincy laughed him out of the room and then he like had to go all the way down the list i mean maybe maybe because of the fact that everyone thought this was a porno frankie's probably the only one that says well even if i don't think it is or even if you claim it's not i'll, I'll yeah. still try it <laughs> jake can you verify this i read somewhere that i've had the time of my life needed to be written with kind of a mambo backing track yes this is true so jennifer gray and patrick swayze could dance the because their original shell drake dances as a mambo yeah, I feel like it was a little blurry because I think Donald Markowitz was the guy that kind of came up with the beat, the Latin beat. And I think yeah. that he was already inspired by a lot of the 60s Latin infused music. So it, it could get a little blurry there with if they wanted it specifically that or if he just felt compelled because that was the era's Latin infused ideas going on at that point. And there's such a big subplot in the movie of like, this is how to samba. This is how to mambo. This is how to pachata. Like, the like pachanga. that is the pachanga. Yeah, and then I, I love how Patrick Swayze is like, "We'll dance to the pachanga." Yeah, he has to correct his pronunciation. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I think that whether you want to say organically or like was handed down by the studio, like it makes sense that it has that little Latin infusion in it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Early on, a Lionel Richie song was meant to be the big dance scene at the end, but Kenny Ortega bumped it in favor of I've Had the Time of My Life, and it was the last song on the tape submitted for the movie's final scene. This also feels very much like I had $100 in my bank. Yeah. Where they're yeah. like, I was <laughs> there are late, a lot of moments like and they that. ran in with the tape, and they put it in, and they said, this is it. What's also funny is that the... The Warns and Medley track, it wasn't like the singers on the track weren't like that wasn't ready by the time the finale was filmed. So they they filmed the ending to the demo with uh, Previtt and Capelli's backing track. Yeah. I mean, they had to put this on like right as they were finished filming. This was like the last few days. So they had to Previtt had to do this song and then basically sing it. So they heard it so they could, Kenny Ortega could then create choreography somewhat around it. So they were never going to get Bill Medley and Jennifer Warrens to like just fly in for this song that they have no idea about. So yeah, then they got this crazy demo-itis out of it. (laughs) Yeah. So the the demo version, it did appear later on a 1998 CD reissue of Previtt's 1981 album, Frankie and the Knockouts, but it's only listed as quote bonus track. And everyone loved it. Swayze said that it was his favorite version. Yeah. Probably yeah. because he listened to it 7,000 oh, yeah. times while dancing. Jim, Jimmy Jimmy had said, like, this was the worst case of demoitis he'd ever heard from, like, a group of filmmakers. Like, it was out of control. They they did not want anybody else at this point. <laughs> so, uh, Bergstein, she wanted a famous 60s singer to perform I've Had the Time of My Life. It was purposeful. She wanted to blend the contemporary 
musical elements of the 80s with the aesthetics of the period. And the song was initially brought to Donna Summer and Joe Esposito, but Summer turned it down because, again, she thought it was hell yeah too porny. Uh, I wonder how she felt afterwards, but because she didn't like the title of the film, <laughs> probably Donna fourteen Summer million dollars poorer. And <laughs> later, producer Michael Lloyd approached Daryl Hall of Hall and Oates and Kim Carnes, which I would have love to hear personally because I just really love the song Betty Davis Eyes, but they also declined. And ultimately, Bill Medley of the Righteous Brothers was approached by Jimmy Einer, but he turned it down at first because his daughter was supposed to be born soon. He promised his wife he would be there for the birth, and he was concerned about appearing in another song. I guess he had recently done the song Loving on Borrowed Time with Gladys Knight from Cobra, which A movie flopped. that rules... I guess it didn't do so well at the time, and he didn't want to be on another song that was probably going to flop. But they they did get him. It sounds like Einer approached Jennifer Warnes, who had just released a cover of Leonard Cohen songs. She initially wasn't so sure about it upon hearing the demo, but was persuaded. And then Medley came on because Warrens was attached to it, finally. And so they finally convince Warrens, and then Medley is like, okay, I'll do it because I like Warrens. So they, the, these two singers already know and like and respect each other. And they agreed all together that they would record the song in LA. Jennifer Warren's boyfriend, actually, she told me, was really the impetus. She was mm-hmm. like, all right, Bill's attached. Should I do this? I don't. He's like, do it, do it. So shout out to Jennifer Warren's boyfriend in 1987. <laughs> we, we love to hear things Unnamed like that. Unnamed man. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it was interesting too. I feel like that time period, I mean, the 1980s, there were a lot of hits being made just for original songs for movies. And then Top Gun had just had Danger Zone, you know, Footloose, all those classics. I Tune mean, into future episodes of this show. Yeah, yeah. I'd like to tell you both now that when I met my husband, friend of the pod, Taylor Barefoot, who also wrote the music for NSYNC, <laughs> he still had like, you know how when we were all younger, we're like we had actual songs as phone as ringtones as ringtones yes yeah, yeah, yeah. um and now like everyone's phones just have the vibrate well taylor's ringtone is still and was danger zone fuck yeah and i, I just <laughs> thought that was shout out to awesome. friend of the show my fiance leanne o'Shea who saw top gun for the first time in 2019 and then we went to a pre-screening of top gun maverick in 2022 <gasps> she bought a flight suit to wear to the screening and as we were driving to the Arrow Theater in LA she said if they don't play Danger Zone I'm going to lose my shit and in and, the movie yeah. and they and yeah, they really and they they, absolutely yeah, did the new top gun I slaps it's great it totally slaps but anyway <laughs> well so, I was yeah. I was also going to say Jennifer Warren's was like the hot commodity for if you want an Oscar original song cuz she had mm-hmm. it goes like it goes in Norma Ray and then she also did Up Where We Belong for an Officer and a Gentleman. So she huge, had like, she had huge, the bona fides. Huge, huge, Yeah. Wow. Well, this is something that I love about, so like, even though they were listening to the demo, it sounds like like Patrick Swayze and Jennifer Grey and like the whole dance squad in the last scene, they were uplifted, no pun intended. They performed as they did because they just like the song just slapped that hard. Yeah, and they had been shooting for months, and I think it probably mm-hmm. breathed a little. A, a lot of filmmaking is standing in the grocery aisle saying, this is going to be delicious soup one day. 
<laughs> right? It is a slog at times. Yeah. And so if they got a little bit of a glimpse of like what that soup was going to taste like. And, and it, I think it invigorated them. Previtt had also said, by the way, that he had remembered this moment. Patrick Swayze came up to him. It was sometime before the Grammys or something. And he was like, I just want to let you know. Like, we were not anticipating this movie to be anything close to good. He said, let you, he was just going to be like, let's get this piece of crap over with. Like, that was his, like, direct yeah. quote to him. Yeah. And then Emil came in and Eleanor came in with the with the last cassette. And he was like, oh, my God, we might actually have something. <laughs> the, the same effect crossed over to Warrens and Medley as they recorded the song. Because, like, to give emotional depth to the song, Warrens had the video playback and footage of the final scene brought in to synchronize her singing. And both of them were uplifted emotionally. Like the vocals and the song did so well because the singers were actually able to watch as they were singing. So it's like this feedback loop. And that's super not common when recording stuff for movies. And and when Rachel is saying synchronize, like they're not changing the lyrics or the timing of anything. The song is timed where, the way it's timed. What they're trying to synchronize is the energy, the the zest, whatever, whatever that big moment. And you can really, despite me not liking this cue very much, you can really hear the extra sauce when Swayze does that lift and they take their vocals to the next level at the end of that song. Okay, so it's no secret that this is not my favorite cue in the film. It might be, in fact, my least favorite cue in the film. I think every song, with the exception of Hungry Eyes, gives a, a great sense of time and place. Love is Strange is one of my favorite musical moments in any film. And then Time of My Life comes in, and it takes me from, like, 60s nostalgia to 80s cheese. And it's a different time and place. And to me, it makes what should be a really romantic and triumphant moment a little bit goofy. So... I know that I'm wrong. I know that the problem is with me. Especially because Jake wrote his essay for The Ringer called How I Have Had the Time of My Life Save Dirty Dancing. So I want to learn. I want to be educated. Jake and Rachel, why? Why am I wrong about I've Had the Time of My Life? <laughs> Jake, please. Uh, okay, I'll start here. So I think you kind of started to hit on this a little bit, Rachel, with the idea of wanting an 80s song to kind of be infused into this uh, movie. And the big factor for me was Max Kellerman has that uh, speech at the end to his conductor. And he's talking, you know, we've seen it all. You know, we, we had the served the first pasteurized milk of the border and all the war years and all that stuff. Lots of changes, you know, and he's talking about all these changes happening. Like this was early 1960, 1963. I'm actually wearing a t-shirt right now from that thing you do. Uh, ah, which takes uh, subject of a future subject no. of no it will be a, a, by this point it will be past episode past in the ep- future yeah. okay well i that's my one of my favorite movies of all time i got to do an oral history of that as well two par- and two-parter yes we, t- well, we talked to tom everett scott oh wow yeah he's the best we were he's so him. nice <laughs> he's the best guy and that was i mean that that movie took place in 1964 same vibes where it's this very euphoric time but you can kind of sense that everything is changing. JFK hasn't been shot yet. Uh, Before the Beatles came. Right. Vietnam hasn't happened yet. There's just this like kind of innocence, very much in tune with baby that has uh, been preserved, but it seems to be eroding. And I think looking at the anachronistic way that you put in this 80s song, 
Max Komen is freaking out. He's all these kids are they don't want to come to the Catskills anymore. This Trips is Trips to Europe. That's what the kids want. Yeah. They they're going away. And this song comes in, it kind of gives him an idea of this is what the future could look like. This is what this 80s song is bringing out in front of all these dancers and every generation. And by the end of the song, I mean, everyone is dancing and singing. They've got a whole band. I don't know how the band knew the song. It was on a, <laughs> it was on a vinyl. They just start playing in the background just as all great eighties songs, uh, musicals kind of do. But there's this kind of like idea of like Reaganism is kind of like recapturing, you know, the 1960s. And vibe. it just feels like that there is a sense that by mixing these decades together, you're creating this almost timeless effect. And in, and in some ways, like I mentioned, the 80s kind of gives this glimpse into the future of what music could become, what dancing will become. That's one way to look at it. What you're trying to tell me is that this song unites the themes of the March of Time and Loss of Innocence, which also wraps into it the abortion subplot where like the only reason that Penny's life is in danger to begin with is because abortion is not legal and unsafe and performed in secret and a thing that people are ashamed of can't imagine a, living in a world where that would be the case now huh. and so it all the sub theme that i didn't pick up on is that the slow progress of time is not necessarily something to be afraid of and we don't really need to look back on the 60s as a simpler, better time, just, mm -hmm. you know, a different and complicated time. Right. Because even Max Kellerman is in the 60s and looking back, oh, man, it was a simpler time in World War II and 1930s and 40s. And when we, had, when had we were great. growing up, yeah. right. everyone, everyone had, a great. had a great in the 40s. <laughs> and no one's doing the sock hop anymore. Like, that's over. I did but think it's kind of funny, like looking at Tito and Max's conversation and they're talking about it. Like Max is talking to Tito as though they all live through it the same mm -hmm. way, <laughs> which they, you know, Tito is a black man and you know, that doesn't really get brought up in the movie. It's just something that I've noticed. And there are some issues with, you know, there's only one black couple in all the dirty dancers and they only dance together. They're just like off in the corner. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> and that kind of comment that Max makes to Tito if uh, the movie were made today, he would be like the boomer character that is like th things were simpler back in the 60s in my right? day. Right. And I think that, well, I think the music, too, in general, like even if you go outside of the plot, it, there is a general timelessness like this. The, the synths, the Latin percussive elements, there's something a little bit timeless about that in a way like pop music at that time still i mean we're still listening to 80s songs there's still yeah. much a very much an infusion of 80s songs in today's music so there is that kind of i think connective tissue where it was beneficial for the movie for its longevity just because they're able to use music that is still recognizable and, and fun to listen to today which i mean they couldn't have known but you know there is that idea I think, unfortunately for me, my first exposure to I Had the Time of My Life was not on the radio when it was a big hit in 1987. And it was not for Dirty Dancing, but it was in the Carnival Cruise Line commercials. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> with Carnival, you get what you pay for. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, <laughs> Carnival travelers. CEO of Carnival is a big fan. I, I have a whole theory about cruises and that, yeah, that you, you get so out of them what you put into them. And Carnival is kind of like a lower tier of of cruise and you can't go frugal on something like a cruise because like boat safety 
if Titanic has not taught us anything. But this is this is another <laughs> discussion. For, I, I want to I want to uh, add though to what Jake said about why I've had a time in my life is a great song. Even though I'm going to just open this though with saying that I don't actually like the song that much as a song. Oh, interesting. I would not listen to it apart not from putting the it movie. on a mix. I would not put it right. on a mix. There are other songs on the soundtrack that I would put on a mix for sure. Yes, being one of them. Or Hungry Eyes, even. Love is Strange is so fucking good. But <laughs> I think that like it's one of the most successful syncs of all time, given the background, how we know the song made the ending of the movie more of an emotional heart twist. And how we know that just the singers watching the dancing made the song itself sound more alive. And finally, to kind of build on the like time period aspects and the loss of innocence in the early 60s, this movie is so concerned with like cast. Like you have baby's family who gets like the best cabin on on the premises and then you have past system even within the staff of kellerman's and the resort and like who gets treated how and this staff like the yale and harvard educated staffers you guys can romance and and like they're not told to keep their hands off of the of the women and the girls there and then there's like the the dancers and the and the entertainment crew and you can like hint at sex and like we need you to look sexy and be kind of sexy but only for money and lessons you're selling your body but don't you dare actually do anything have any agency yeah yeah so anyhow there's this whole like tier system within the characters and the groups they inhabit in the movie and in the last scene you you just see all of the even for just a moment those tears will probably like come back up together like one of those little like dolls that are held together by string where you push the button and mm-hmm. all the little parts collapse but just for this one moment in time everybody is like dancing together. It's kind of like a Shakespearean play where there's a wedding at the end and everyone comes together and is like rallying around this one exciting thing. And then that's what I love so much about the ending of this film and the song cue itself, because I think I read somewhere too that Warren's and Medley's voices are meant to be like Johnny and Baby. And mm-hmm. Johnny even yeah. sings a little, or he like, lip syncs to the the chorus and it's it's just such a it's just such a moment stuck in time it's like they say in six feet under at the end you can't take a picture of this it's already gone i i never thought that rachel would be taking the fellini-esque approach of like life is pain and horrid but let's get together and dance at a carnival (laughs) like eight and a half well, I didn't even know I was doing that. Hell so yeah. You're welcome. <laughs> well, there's a, there is one interesting element, too. I've, I don't think we brought this up with, with the, the initial writing of the song, but Frankie Previtt was the only person to write this song as a duet. So when he heard the song about, okay, Baby Meets Johnny, he's like, okay, well, it makes sense. There would be two voices in this song. Right. He was the only person out of hundreds of, you know, submissions, I would imagine. And to go with the, uh, your other point, Rachel, which is, I think, interesting, this this idea of, of this big mixing pot at the end and everyone's celebrating... Let's not forget, 
Robbie tries to get baby to read the fountainhead. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, you know, the fact that that whole idea is, you know, this idea of rejecting the uh, collective good here kind of comes back in this really nice karmic way. And here is this girl who's basically created this entire environment where everyone now can be involved and you're bringing in different races and ethnicities and, and different caste systems as well. I mean, everyone is in this kind of melting pot, so to speak. And so you have a very celebratory moment at the end that kind of is rejecting the, the early plot threads <laughs> of what Robbie is trying to get. Yeah. 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 Robbie is just like a 80s yuppie. I like, like douchebag missed the dude. Ayn Rand uh, uh, reference. Oh yeah, he. Uh, so she's she's trying to convince him. I this went right over my head as a kid, of course. But baby is trying to convince Robbie, who hasn't impregnated Penny, to like. I know he has the money, so to pay for the. She's trying abortion. to convince him to pay for her uh, back alley abortion and. He won't do it because he is like, well, I, who even knows if it's mine? And I don't believe her. And I, I'm just a huge misogynist. And oh, by the way, I'm carrying a copy of the Fountainhead in my back <laughs> pocket. It's in my jeans pocket. Here, here you go. Read this. No one you, has I, a more punchable face than a dude carrying a copy of yeah, the Fountainhead. In he has a copy of the pocket. Fountainhead, a, a very read through copy of the Fountainhead on his person, and he hands it and says, "Read this. It's a book I think you'll enjoy, but but don't fold any of the pages or whatever. Like I have, I have notes in the margin." And she, <laughs> hell yeah, she's only seventeen. She may not know who Ayn Rand is, but all she is seeing is this guy being an utter douchebag. Using to take responsibility for himself and be because he's like some people count, some people don't, mm-hmm. and then she's rugged like, individualism. Oh, yeah. Hell. A- anyway, I like how this movie does grow with you in that way because there there are some things that when I, you know when I first watched the movie I was like I don't know what this book is and now I'm like of course I know. What it is. I mean Aviv has that has that inspired you at all? Has has this idea of history? Yeah, and- I think that I'm gonna uh, become a libertarian. <laughs> No, it does. It 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 has backfired. It did. I I think it has inspired me a bit to appreciate the movie more because the it, there seems to have been layers that I didn't pick up on or or kind of was willfully ignorant to um, that coalesce in that final dance moment. And to Rachel's point, like you're definitely right that this is on paper one of the most successful sinks of all time and the movie would not be as popular as it was or is without that sink so i i am definitely wrong i could i could do without the synths you take <laughs> away the synths and I'm, i might i might warm to it if i can get like somewhat music nerdy here too the the thing that was interesting to me was there is the classic 1960s chord progression is like one, six, four, five, generally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are like doo-wop chord pro- right. progression. Yeah. Right. So you got Stand By Me and you've got the Righteous Brothers Unchained Melody that mm-hmm. uses it. And you bring one of the Righteous Brothers back. And John Danicola was very adamant about how, you know, he took that one, six, four, five idea and then just tweaked, I think it was the four, but he, he made it a, a flat seventh, right? And so it, it kind of gives this real tension to that music until the big lift and release. And I thought that was interesting because, you know, you're, you're bringing in Bill Medley to sing this song, which is strictly about Max Kellerman's nostalgia. 
and you are kind of grounding it in the fact that this is an older singer, but even this older singer has now embraced the eighties and kind of evolved with the times in some way. And it is funny too, that Patrick Swayze has now two movies in which uh, a righteous brother sings his, his big song (laughs) with Bobby Hatfield and ghost. (laughs) Can I put on this conversation with a snippet from my stereo gum coworkers, Tom Brayan's number ones column where he wrote about I've had the time of my life and I I think it will really summarize what we've been talking about here. Oh, so Tom writes, by the time the extremely long and anachronistic song ends, everyone in the ballroom has a whole new perspective. Old ladies are dancing. The owner of the resort is dancing. Baby's mom is dancing. The house band joins in. Baby's father, Jerry Orbach, admits to Johnny that he was wrong. Johnny lip syncs along with a song that will not exist for another 24 years. It's absurd and it's beautiful. Before that ending, Dirty Dancing hadn't exactly been going for cinematic realism, but it mostly took place in a world that at least had a passing resemblance to our own. In that ending, the film takes off into the realm of magical dream logic reverie. That ending is where we learn that Dirty Dancing is truly subjective storytelling. It's baby rhapsodizing about this one beautiful experience in her life, telling the tale the way it exists in her imagination. It's memory as fantasy, which might be the purest definition of nostalgia. So I know that you're a big Grease 2 fan, but let's talk Grease 1 for a second. This is akin to Sandy and... Danny? Danny, thank you. (laughs) Sandy and Danny like taking off in the flying car at the end of Grease. Yeah. Okay, I'll buy that for a dollar. I still have never seen Grease. What? (laughs) I know, I know, I know. I could tell you what happens in it. Aviv. Maybe uh, another analogy for younger audiences would be Ron Burgundy and Veronica Corningstone going off to Pleasure Town, where he plays the jazz flute. The jazz flute. <laughs> <laughs> I like that much more. Fantastic. Aviv, really? Have, have you seen Grease too? I have seen no Grease. I've seen all of the High School Musical movies, if that counts. Okay, well, no, it doesn't count. I haven't seen any of the High School Musical movies, but I feel like I was. I always felt like I was too old for them. Because I also never had the Disney Channel, so that, that that's like a huge blind spot in my during like deep COVID lockdown. I watched all three High School Musical movies in a day. It doesn't seem very like you. It 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 changed my brain chemistry for the <laughs> in, a, in a good or a bad way. <laughs> so bad, very bad. <laughs> yeah, I have no wish. I have no wish to relive those haircuts. How many days was Get Your Head in the Game stuck get you, in your get head? You, get, you, get your head in the game. I watch that. I watch High School Musical, the musical series. Big High School Musical head here. You should watch Grease. You should okay. watch Grease. I want to be there when you do. You want to be there just watching me watch Grease? I bet you Taylor probably hasn't seen it either. <laughs> I'm probably right. Too cool for that. No, no. He just was a very like, tunnel vision guitar person. Like, there's, as, no, there's <laughs> no guitars in Greece. I don't want anything to do with it. No, he just didn't. like. When we first got together, I was like, you didn't see blah? What? Yeah. Uh, and he's all, he is too cool because he was like, I was in a band at that time. I was like touring at that time. He was like literally doing cool. 
No, but like when people were watching, because like it was always on TV or something, and he wasn't watching TV. He was watching maybe MTV and that's it. But if you even watch TV, he didn't watch TV. He was like out like teaching guitar lessons at age 13 and up. Taylor listens to the show and he's going to, he's, yeah. And then he was like, he knows all this. He's heard me say it. Like, (laughs) so when we first got together, I was like, you what? But like, he's cooler than me, like as a young, younger person, because he was out doing cool things. And I was in my room watching movies and being sad. (laughs) Me too. Yeah. So, can we talk a little bit about the song on its own, right? The song was released as part of the movie soundtrack and some some weird things happened, right? Yes. Well, the funny thing about that was this song was originally out, I think it was about six weeks. It dropped before the movie came out, somewhere around there. And it was like the full seven minute version of the song. So like imagine you're in your car and you hear this song. And you hear, oh, Bill uh, Bill Medley has a new song with Jennifer Warrens. And then you hear this and you have no context for what this song is. And it's seven minutes long. And, you're and the just, build is just in, interminably long. <laughs> and there's that whole interlude, too, of just you know, saxophones and trumpets going crazy. And so they clearly botched it because I think what happened was Vestron Pictures pushed the release date without telling the record studio or RCA records that they were (laughs) going to do that. And so it came out automatically. It was almost like it was in a queue and it just hadn't been updated. And so then they had to deal with the fact that they had this song that just basically dropped off the charts in a matter of a week or so. Jimmy Einer actually then smartly decided to repurpose and create a smaller condensed copy of this song so that it could actually play on radio and make more sense and be a little bit shorter yeah, the condensed version is almost five minutes, which is still too long for like a quote unquote pop song. Yeah. yeah. But to your point, I think earlier, like this, again, is not necessarily a song you want to listen to alone in the car or just if you're walking down the street. Like it really is the only place that this is meant for is banquet halls for large gatherings for celebratory moments. Bar and bat mitzvahs. Yeah. The nostalgia factor itself, like I've had the time of my life. I mean, you're basically saying, hey, it's graduation. I've had the time of my life here. Let's let's move on to a new new thing. Weddings, bar mitzvahs, like I had mentioned earlier. I mean, that is kind of the venue for this. (laughs) Can you think of another song off the top of your head that is similar that you would never listen to outside of these venues or the movie? Now that you've talked about graduation, I'm thinking about vi- the vitamin C song graduation. That's true. It's because it I- was just played at so many graduations. And and it had like a very short radio life and then is just for graduations now. That's true. That's true. That, that That's a good one. I mean, I, I was just thinking about Don't Stop Believing just because I don't oh, think you, shit. it's become so overplayed now and it's it's kind of ridiculous. But the idea of listening to that just on your own without anybody around you to sing with or to air guitar or whatever just kind of seems, you know, it it doesn't, it seems antithetical to listening to it. So you may have zeroed in on one of the reasons that I dislike the song is I hate don't stop believing too. (laughs) I hate don't stop believing too, except, except when I saw rock of ages live um, (laughs) on stage, one of my first jobs out of college was working for the city guide magazine. That was like not a very cool magazine, but it it did get, we got a lot of free Broadway tickets. So I saw rock of ages on Broadway twice and it was so much better than I thought it was going to be. Like I went in there. I saw the movie. It's don't watch the movie. Okay. (laughs) Too late. 
<laughs> it's bad. But the no, but the show is so good. The movie, <laughs> I have not seen the movie. I've just heard it was garbage, at least compared oh, to the show. No, Tom Cruise is great. <laughs> as Stacy Jax. I feel similarly to Don't Stop Believing about Uptown Funk. Mm. So I've been to a lot of weddings and my fiance and I play a game called white people wedding bingo (laughs) where we like fill out uh, our little car. Anything with ironically anything with Pharrell. Yeah. yeah, Anything with Pharrell, anything with Bruno Mars. Bruno Mars basically Mm -hmm. has released one album and it's called now that's what I call weddings. (laughs) And so uh, yeah, Uptown Funk is once again, had its time on the radio. And now the only thing I associate it with is like white people popping off at weddings. Well, and that makes sense because that the beats in that are so hypnotic. And then there's a space in between the beats for the DJ to come in. All right, everyone, come yeah. on out to the dance floor. <laughs> but, but it does make sense. Yeah. Don't stop believing just to go back. I mean, I was just thinking that off the top of my head, but it does make sense almost in the way that Dirty Dancing that you don't like time of my life because there is almost a duet aspect it's just a small town girl, oh yeah yeah just, just a city boy just a city boy i mean you're setting up these two competing it's people it's a little musical theatery for me mm-hmm. Ugh. So, you know normally i really can't get down with musical theater except for rock of ages <laughs> except for let me tell you about rock of ages it was amazing so i have i have warmed to it a little bit or at the very least begun to understand my dislike of it <laughs> okay, so we've we've unpacked it. We've unpacked. This is more th- group therapy for me than okay. anything else. Self awareness, first step. Yeah. Well, should we talk about a few stats? Just yes. go down and talk about how well this song did. Incredibly well. We did already mention that it got the Oscar for best original song in '87. It also got the Grammy for best pop performance by a duo or a group with vocals in '88. It got the Golden Globe for best original song in '88. It got an ASCAP award for most performed songs from motion pictures and ASCAP songwriter of the year. So two ASCAP awards. In 2004, AFI listed it as 86, number 86 out of 100 for AFI's 100 years, 100 songs survey. And the soundtrack I think we mentioned before, it went to number one on the album charts in 80, in November 87. It doffed uh, Bruce Springsteen's Tunnel of Love out of the top spot. And this soundtrack stayed number one for 18 weeks. It's not bad. Mm. It kept selling well into 1988 to the point where uh, Billboard named it the year's number two album. And that year, the Dory Dancing soundtrack outsold Def Leppard's Hysteria in Excess's Kick Michael Jackson's Bad, and Guns N' Roses' Appetite for Destruction. Only George Michael's Faith sold more records. So according to just the numbers, Dirty Dancing is the third highest selling movie soundtrack of all time. Behind, can anyone guess the other two? I'm so like locked into the Dirty Dancing space that I can't think about anything else right now. Yeah. Saturday Night Fever. Oh yeah, that makes sense. And The Bodyguard. Wow, which the I bodyguard, haven't seen. The Bodyguard is the highest selling soundtrack of all time. It's like like not even close. Which I believe John Danicola worked on. So I think I think you're right. I think that so that that's an it's the right era. crazy run he's, for him. He's he's his kids are are paying for college. It's yeah. Funny. Well, you know the the funny thing about that too was the the the, the most genius thing that Frankie Previtt did with John and Donald was secure the publishing. Like they told Linda Gottlieb, they're like, okay, look. 
we'll we'll get whatever small sum of money for this song, but we get the publishing, and that is incredible because they both wrote it and get the publishing. You split basically all of it together. Yeah. Incredible. Basically every story you hear about like a 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s musician getting hosed out of royalties. It's because they didn't retain their publishing, including like Aretha Franklin not getting paid basically anything for respect because she Mm. technically did not write the song, even though she did. It's a whole fucking thing. Well, (laughs) (laughs) sorry to bum everybody out. So I'm kind of stealing slightly from Tom, my coworker, because he has a section in the number ones column on Stereogum called Bonus Beats. When a song, a number one song has like a bunch of other instances in pop culture. And there were so many bonus beats that I wanted to like grab a few and just talk talk about them. So Time of My Life has lived on just through the ages. You cannot get rid of it. It will never go away, no matter how much of a time capsule it sounds like. In the 2006 finale of American Idol, which I never really got into, but uh, there it is. Which we've all seen. I was a big big American Idol fan. Really? So did you see this moment? Yes. Okay. And Taylor Hicks, Soul Patrol. Uh, Where's my Soul Patrol at? (laughs) Wow. (laughs) All you Taylor Hicks heads. All I remember about Taylor Hicks is that a lot of people at the time told my father that he looked like Taylor Hicks. He was the Taylor, zaddy, right? He had yeah, because Taylor Hicks, like, well, he was a younger guy, I think, but he did go prematurely gray. And my yes. dad went prematurely gray, but retained all of his hair. And so even though Taylor Hicks, I think, is like 15, 20 years younger than my dad, um, everyone just thought that my dad was Taylor Hicks because <laughs> oh, yeah. of their gray hair, salt and pepper. So anyway, uh, Taylor Hicks and Catherine McPhee sang I've Had the Time of My Life, and that feels like a very American Idol-y song oh, yeah. to sing. Mm-hmm. So, the Black Eyed Peas in 2010 reinterpolated. If you want to call it interpolate, I, I call it just... Stealing? I think that's more than interpolation. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they, I was going to ask, like, <laughs> is Fergie doing it better than Jennifer Warren's? I mean, it's... <laughs> so they repurpose I've Had yeah, the Time of go. My Life... For their 2010 single, The Time, Dirty Bit. Dirty Bit. Which just... I just dropped made, that in there. <laughs> it's just one of those butt-bleeding songs. Like, you start to hear it, and your butt's just immediately starts bleeding. Wait. What? <laughs> Can you do me a fa- I know that we're getting to the end of our episode. Yeah. Can you just define a butt-bleeding song for me real quick? <laughs> Think about, like, if your ears are being bleeding, but... I always think of um, it's a really early like YouTube viral video where it's like a stick figure animation. Oh yeah, like you remember the end of the world, like the fire Z missiles. Yeah, like it was like um, yes. Homestar. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. S- similar vein. Oh, rejected cartoons. That's what it was. A rejected cartoons, and like there's just one like bit in there where like a bunch of clouds. Like one cloud is like, they're all dancing. Yay, everybody dance. Yay. And then one of the clouds is like, my anus is bleeding. Oh, Jesus. And, <laughs> and then, then they're all like, yay. And he's like, no, 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 no my anus is bleeding. And then, so, <laughs> like, well, I, 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 well, that's probably where, like, if in my head, if I heard a song or watch something, but mostly just hear a song and it's just, just my, so. Mm-hmm god awfully mm-hmm. bad and i realize this is a subjective thing but i think we can agree that the the 2010s and late 2000s for black eyed peas is- <laughs> well I'm, i was scared to think that I, I i believe this probably would have been played around my senior prom Hell so yeah. 
I think I was probably dancing this at some point, just thinking, wow, Black Eyed Peas coming. I, you know, I probably hadn't even put together the fact that this was part of Dirty Dancing World. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. To take my rightful spot as the the hater on the show, I, th- I feel like the Red Hot Chili Pepper might make my butt bleed. <laughs> like whatever the opposite of an earworm is. Another yeah, phrase butt, that I hate. Butt bleed. <laughs> butt bleed. <laughs> Great. I'm, I'm back in. Okay, cool. Good. Uh, anyway, so a band that I like considerably more, R.I.P. Fifth Harmony, but Fifth Harmony interpolated I've had the time of my life in 2015 on Body Rock. And there's, oh, also, there. It, speaking of white people, there's a Tell great needle drop in Get Out where near the end of the movie, Allison Williams' character, where she's wearing a white button-down shirt and, and she's been outed. I won't spoil the movie for anyone who hasn't seen it, but so the one scene that everyone asks Jordan Peele and Allison Williams about is yeah. where she's she's eating Fruit, Fruit Loops. Loops one at a time. Yeah. And mm-hmm. she's I guess watching Dirty Dancing. Oh, and drinking kitchen. milk separately. Right. Yeah, out of from a straw. And she's listening to I've had the time of my life. But she's oh, not watching. She's oh, listening to it. I just assumed it. that she was watching. No, no, Dirty no. Dancing. So she's listening to I've had the time of my life, and she is going through photos of potential Black the paramours. Next, the, the next, the next victim. That's the right, next that's victim. Right, right. Yeah. Um, well, like NBA picks and things like that. Which further accentuating oh. the point that you're kind of a psychopath if you listen to the song alone. Yes. It's true. <laughs> when and really that the song bad. is incredibly white. Right. By the way, I have some more pop culture additions here. Please. That please. I didn't see on here, but please. I felt they had to be shared. And they're not necessarily just the songs, but the first thing is Crazy Stupid Love. They did that whole so segment. So they did the lift. Yeah, yes. I was going to yeah. mention that. I yeah. love Crazy Stupid Love, and I think that the two of them together are just like dynamite. And apparently Gosling had done that in real life for a girl, and, and that was what inspired that scene. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can't believe I lift that out. That is, that. yeah, yeah I, really dropped, I dropped the ball. The other one, uh, there's a few more. There was the Super Bowl commercial with Eli Manning and Odell Beckham which dropped during the Super Bowl. And Bill Medley said that he was in a casino in Las Vegas when he saw this and like heard his voice and was like, what is going on? And everyone's like, what? (laughs) He's like, well, yeah, another, uh, another uh, couple dollars in my bank account. So that was pretty good because that was the, the choreographer for that commercial was one of the choreographers for Hamilton. And she loved dirty dancing growing up. So it was like this really kind of full circle moment for her. There was also a United healthcare commercial. Do you guys remember this? It no. was this married couple and they're in their kitchen and they're both talking about how this song comes on the radio and they're both, oh, this is our song. And they start mimicking the lines to each other. The husband turns around and the wife runs at him yes. and then smashes him into the table. And then it's like, Don't, aren't you glad that you have good health? <laughs> yeah, need, need health care? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do remember. Man, if only like health insurance was as good as advertising. <laughs> I know. <laughs> like if, uh, but that is a good ad. <laughs> I have a great book for you to read, Rachel. It's called The Fountainhead. <laughs> I've got it here in my back pocket. But you have, <laughs> but careful, you have notes on the margins. Yeah, don't rip the pages. There was also a TikTok back in like Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump era where they basically, it was like a town hall debate and they kind of mimicked the lines and the, and the song dubbed over them with, with uh, their mouths and it was pretty good. Oh, so. man. <laughs> I, I, you know, if you want to check that out, that's that's a good one. I do. I guess, I guess we should have Pokemon yeah. gone to the polls. <laughs> I think on the, I think it was on the Ringer where they did an oral history of the Sears air conditioning ad. 
oh the, yeah the, the cool you know like you i'll go i'll, I'll call now yeah t- t- how about tomorrow yeah how about today how yeah. about today yeah call. yeah yeah jake you should i'm assigning this to you because i do not work <laughs> for the ringer but you should call you should they're hiring you should uh pitch an oral history on the united healthcare commercial with them. yeah that, that rules yeah because because i guess it would be now the 30th uh, no, the 40th anniversary. Well, no, 35th. I think we've passed a lot of the, the general. Sir, uh, we're, we're at 36, 36 years yeah. of Dirty Dancing now. Okay, yeah. so we'll just wait four more years. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, in 2020, E! News confirmed that Jennifer Grey was set to executive produce and star in a new Dirty Dancing film, a sequel. Plot details were not revealed, but gray confirmed that she will be playing baby in the new version and she says quote i'm excited by the challenge of looking at it from the point of view of what happens when it's 30 years later and it's the 90s what happens with that person that had that experience what happened to her and what is now relevant about the original story at a different moment looking at it through a different lens jennifer also confirmed that the movie would be released on valentine's day 2024 no word on whether or not someone will have the time of their life. <laughs> I, love, I love the newscaster yeah. <laughs> element here. I'm like Coming stacking up. my papers. Yeah. <laughs> it's less than a year away. It's less than a year away. I worry that, you know, there are interviews with Jennifer Grey as recently as three months ago, still talking about this new Dirty Dancing sequel. But I don't know. I haven't heard anything. I, I'm imagining the writer's strike might delay it a little bit. Yeah, who knows, man. I have high hopes for it, only because I'm not sure what exactly the order of events was, but when her memoir came out last year, then right in tandem, they released the news that like this was in development. Mm-hmm. So I don't think I've ever seen Jennifer Grey get the amount of goodwill as she got when her memoir came out, she was like on the view and on all these morning shows and everyone just kept talking about how great she looked, which was really nice to hear because she deserves it. And that for so many years, people just could not shut up about how not great she looked. I could never buy that. She, that she was like, Oh man, look at this homely actress, Jennifer gray. Oh, so ugly. Like I, I can't even, fathom people saying that about her you know are you talking mm-hmm. like post nose either either yeah. i mean i think po- post nose job she looks fine and, and maybe a little less unique which is what she was going for but more than she bargained for in a certain way well the story actually is do, can i tell you the nose job story yeah, like what really please. happened real quick okay so she did not want any plastic surgery whatsoever she was very against it since she wasn't really getting any work or any work that she wanted after Dirty Dancing, she finally lets, I think maybe either her mother, the industry, her agents, like a combination of all of those forces convince her that, okay, I'll go in and just, she, and has, she's like a really in-depth conversation with her doctor. She wants like just the, the tiniest amount of work possible done like she does not want to look different and she's very clear about that and she so she comes out of it looking like she wanted and she's happy with it everything's good and then she's on the set of another movie and she notices that her like the very tip of her nose is turning white and 
she's like, what's going on? And it's not getting better. And so she goes back. She's a follow-up appointment with her doctor. And her doctor's like, yeah, sometimes this happens. So we'll just, we'll quit. It'll be a really quick fix. Don't worry about it. So she goes back under the knife, basically, and gets another procedure. And then that is when they give her what she really didn't want. Like want. a princess knows. Yeah, like she yeah. lost what, you know, because I guess it was so noticeable that everyone started saying, oh, my God, like, you don't look like you. I didn't recognize you at first. And then, you know, the rest of the story. But yeah. it was because, like, she went in there trying to be like, give me the least amount of work possible. And Jesus. they messed <laughs> it up. In 1999 and 2000, Jennifer starred as herself in a sitcom called It's Like You Know, where basically every joke was about her nose. And oh. yeah, it was, and she had to like kind of Laugh weather off. that on camera. It was, it was pretty bad. The show was like, okay, Grant Heslov's in it, but you know, it's not, I don't know, man. Poor Jennifer Gray. I think she's had the last word in a really good way. I hope so. Maybe this movie will be a way to course correct some of that too. Yeah. I was wondering actually, I was wondering this movie, let's say they bring back this song, which they most likely will. 100%. There's no chance that that doesn't happen. They have to, right? So who is singing it? Which two two artists today would you prefer to sing it, I guess? I mean... Harry Styles? Yeah, because they're talking about Harry Styles as one of the new characters, so... It's oh, like I ha- just took a total guess. <laughs> I think it's like Harry Styles, BB Rexa sort of thing. Like, it's like people Is that BB we Rexa are. BB Rexa A list enough, do you think? I don't know, but we're too old. Ariana Grande, maybe? Ariana Grande is, I think, going to be busy with Wicked-related stuff for like the next five years. I forgot that that was happening. That is happening. I will be first in line to not see that movie. Dua Lipa is also somewhat. Uh, a hot item because she's got yeah. the Barbie soundtrack Barbie. right now. Oh yeah, Dua Lipa's not. But not also, her whole thing is like dance, right? Even though she's not not like a dancer, but she's like she like writes music people can dance to. We'll we'll probably see like a dance, a different kind of dance remix of of the song. Yeah, maybe a grunge remix. Who knows? Oh right, because the nineties. Because the nineties. Oh, I really hope they do like club like. That's what 90s rave, like Like a 90s rave version. I really hope they do. Acid House. I had a time in my life. No, Seal, get Seal to sing it. Seal, please fucking kill me. Maybe maybe the Kylie Minogue or I don't know. Oh, Kylie Minogue. I was actually Kylie Minogue crossed my mind, but again, I don't know if she is. She is super super famous, but she's like she like never achieved the A list status that like in the U S at least that she has everywhere else. So I feel like they will really go for A list. Yeah, But Jake, you bring up a good point, which is like that it would be someone who is relevant in the 90s mm. that they're kind of like dusting off, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Kind of like what Bill Medley was to right. that song. You kind of have to figure out a, a, a good analogy musically, which Ooh. is tough with. I don't know if you want it because you do want to keep it that era. That, that so, yeah, Kylie Minogue might yeah. be a good Gloria Estefan. Ooh. Especially with the Latin infused idea. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Love me some Corey Estefan. I'm gonna think on this. Uh, one thing that I thought was was funny too. Another full circle moment with this song was Bill Medley. Obviously, didn't want to do this song because of his baby McKenna that was being born in the winter. And now, because of this song, he's now performing it with her. Oh yeah, <laughs> on stages. Oh, that's like cute. she's now part of this like trio of women that sing with with Bill, part of like their Righteous Brothers tours and stuff, and they sing the song together as a duet. So it's pretty. That's pretty cool. I thought too. 
Yeah, and she's like close to my age. Yeah. So yeah, yeah maybe maybe just yeah. get Bill and McKenna to do it. Fuck it. <laughs> yeah. Run it back. <laughs> yeah. Jake, you so much for joining us. Thank you. It was a real pleasure. I'm glad I could uh, talk about it. Do you exist on the internet in a way that you want people to observe, to perceive? Yes, yes of course. Any any writer who... Uh, well, I guess not now necessarily. Twitter is becoming a weird space, but I am on Twitter. <laughs> at for Jake, now. Yeah. At JakeKS19. Awesome. And you can check out all of our stuff. We're at the InSync Pod everywhere you get your internet. And I'm at Rambo Calrissian on Twitter and Instagram. Rachel is at R. E. Well, you have a whole fucking. Thing. I'm different. Yeah, I Instagram is Rebroads and Twitter is Rachel Broads. But if you can't remember those things, just Google Rachel Brodsky. I'm very SEO friendly, as I always say. And you find us on the InSync Pod. We're always commenting and tweeting and reposting and stuff like that. And tune in next week. When we do this all over again with another incredible needle drop. Uh, and until next time, I'm a Rubenstein. I'm Rachel Brodsky. And I'm Jake Kringshrifles. Saying nobody puts Jake Kringshrifles in a corner. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.